More Americans are carrying pistols now than ever before. That sounds crazy and scary, and it can be from time to time, but overall, I feel it represents a shift in society when it comes to personal responsibility. It means more and more Americans recognize the need for a disproportionate means of self-defense, and more jurisdictions in the country are recognizing that they can't realistically interfere with or replace that need. But while there are more pistols and waistbands than ever, I feel that the efforts to make these pistols fight ready are coming up short more often than not. I tend not to discuss carried firearms on this podcast, not because I'm not an advocate of the practice, I absolutely am, but because I feel there is already a saturation of content and discussion surrounding concealed carry and on-duty carry. More forums, subreddits, YouTube channels, and podcasts seem to be dedicated to concealed carry than any other subsection of firearms use. I feel that the format of this podcast represents an opportunity to spread practical firearms knowledge that many of my listeners won't likely discover on their own. The stuff I've picked up on carbine usage, training, practicality, and individual setup economics don't come from a background in police or military, but from years of absorbing tons of educational material and filtering what worked, at least for me, from what didn't. That's an ongoing process, and I really enjoy that you guys have been coming along for the ride. Carry stuff is a different story. Concealed carry is both immensely popular and rapidly evolving as a practice. This gives us a combination of educational availability and content overload. So many teachers and community members are willing to share what they know about carrying a pistol effectively, but because we're still learning what works and what doesn't, that knowledge is changing rapidly over a short period of time. It's just too much for me to try to tackle at a great length while still covering the other topics I'd like to cover. I might circle around and try and preach carry practice more once the dust has settled a bit in this innovation storm that we've been in for the last 10 years or so. There are small bits and pieces related to pistol carry here and there that I feel I've gotten a solid enough grasp on to talk about. I'm not a great pistol shooter, and I don't even carry a gun on my person all day every day, though I do always have one nearby. I've discussed before that the exact model of gun you choose doesn't matter much in terms of whether it'll work well for you. Pistols tend to either suck or not suck for everyone, but I haven't touched much on the essential gear needed to make a carry pistol the best it can be. The truth is that there isn't much needed to make a carry setup solid. You pretty much just need a good pistol, a good holster, and a good stiff belt to make the carry part of it work. If you were to add anything to make it combat ready, it would be better sights and a bright white light. And that's what we're going to go over this week. From the very first episode of this podcast, terrible audio and all, I made it clear that I am a bright white light advocate. The number of times I've pestered people in my life to bump up their light game is just unacceptable. A single person shouldn't be this emphatic about something that, to most, seems so minute and inconsequential. I feel my fanaticism comes from a place of good intentions. Any law enforcement professional, criminologist, or student of self-defense will tell you that the odds are good that when you need to draw a gun in self-defense, adequate lighting on the threat isn't likely to be available. It's our job when preparing to defend ourselves to make that adequate light available. We've discussed this before, but if you cannot properly identify a target, you cannot and should not effectively engage it, both for the sake of effectiveness and safety. Drawing a gun on an unidentified person is an awful situation for multiple reasons. First off, you're violating the fourth rule of gun safety because you are not fully aware of the target and what is around it. You are unable to determine the level of threat the target is presenting. You are unable to make judgment calls on shoot or no shoot based on the target's behavior, especially as it changes during the encounter, and you're making it less likely that your shots will be accurate enough to stop the threat. A bright white light shouldn't be considered an optional accessory or upgrade. If you're carrying a weapon for defensive purposes, it should be accompanied with a bright white light. Even if you can't conceal a pistol with a weapon-mounted light, 
you should at least have a handheld light available in a pants pocket or something. If we're now in agreement that a defensive light option is mandatory, and I hope that we are, permit me, if you will, to take a step further. Weapon-mounted lights are better than handheld lights. So much so, in fact, you should consider a handheld light only after all efforts to make a weapon-mounted light setup work have been exhausted. The reasons for this, I feel, are obvious. When the light is mounted to the gun, it is presented at the same time that the gun is. It's faster and easier to turn on when needed, and you don't need to commit an extra hand to hold or manipulate a light, which can be especially critical in a situation as complex and dynamic as an instance involving a violent threat. If a handheld light is all that you're carrying with you, then it's better than nothing, but it's not nearly as ergonomic, efficient, and reliable as a dedicated weapon light. In the past, Having a weapon-mounted light meant that you were attaching a big, bulky flashlight to an already sizable pistol with an accessory rail sufficiently sized for that light. Part of the reason the Glock 19 became the standard benchmark that all other carry guns are compared to, which it still is today, is that it was, at a time, the smallest carry pistol available that was able to mount a full-sized weapon light. That's not to say that a Glock 19 and a large light are not concealable. I can make my Glock 19 and the full-size Surefire X300 mounted to it disappear, but only because I'm using the right holster, belt, and carry position for that task. Today, the average concealed carry pistol is getting smaller, and so weapon light options are hitting the market that are scaled down to match. The Surefire XC1, Streamlight TLR6, and Streamlight TLR7 are all sturdy, bright options that can be mounted to a compact pistol with minimal added weight and bulk. Now that lights are getting this small and concealable, buyers have fewer and fewer excuses for not mounting a light directly to their new carry gun. When shopping for your concealed carry light, there are a couple of different things you need to be looking for in comparing between models. Price and availability will of course be factors for many buyers, but there are technical considerations that can't be ignored. The first of course is whether a weapon light will adequately fit on your gun or if a handheld light will fit in your pocket. Bigger lights are generally brighter and tougher, but the light that you have with you is better than the high lumen monster you left at home because it's too big to carry. Since weapon lights are our preference, as we've stated before, we'll start there. So most pistols have either a standard Picatinny rail or a, quote, universal accessory rail that you can use to mount lights from Surefire, Streamlight, Inforce, Olight, and a number of other brands. If your pistol is too small to have an accessory rail, such as a Glock 43 or a Smith & Wesson M&P Shield, you'll need to find a weapon light that advertises compatibility with your gun, such as the Streamlight TLR6 series. If there are no compatible options available for your carry gun, consider sizing up to a slightly larger gun or you're otherwise stuck with a pocket light. And as we discussed, that's less than ideal. The other thing to look out for is how bright the light is and how it throws that light out from the bezel. Pretty much all light manufacturers will prominently advertise lumens as a measure of light output, but lumens are only part of the equation. You should also read up on the measured lux at the center of the light's output cone, the hotspot, and the average lux on the outsides of the output cone, the spill. A defensive light should generally have a tight, concentrated hotspot and enough spill around it to sufficiently illuminate the target and what's immediately around the target. Lumens help make that happen, but can't get the job done without the other factors being in place. As for specific recommendations, I used Surefire flashlights on my defensive pistols because I wanted the brightest lights I could get at the time, regardless of how big or bulky the light ended up being. I don't regret this, but for new purchases today, I would lean more towards Streamlight's offerings. The TLR1HL has been around for a minute, and it's about as bright as my X300 Ultra, but the TLR1 is a bit smaller, lighter, and cheaper. 
If you feel that's still too big for your carry setup, consider the 500 lumen TLR7, which is designed to fit under the muzzle of a pistol like the Glock 19 without protruding far out like the X300 and TLR1 do. If you're rocking a subcompact single stack gun like the Glock 42, 43, or the MP Shield, go with the TLR6. It's not very bright, but it's better than fumbling through your pocket for your handheld light. Whatever you pick, skip the upsell models available that add visible lasers. Lasers are for concerts and raves, not for fighting with a flashlight. Now that I've probably bored you to death with over-explaining what's under your pistol's barrel, let's switch over to what's above the barrel. The iron sights that came with your pistol probably suck. This is especially true if the pistol was made by Glock or marketed specifically for concealed carry. I don't know why gun manufacturers feel that they should be designing pistols that are unsuitable for actually shooting, but some of these single-stacked subcompacts with those little plastic nubs for sights are just the stuff of nightmares when it actually comes to shooting at the range. Plastic sights with painted dots or lines on them are not going to do you any favors no matter what you're using the gun for. Even when plinking at the range, metal sights with thinner posts and cleaner pictures will have a noticeable effect on your shooting performance, both in terms of speed and accuracy. Those benefits are exaggerated further in defensive shooting, when your cognitive input processing is delayed or distorted by stress, or when you're more likely to inadvertently knock your sights into hard materials in your surroundings. For a long time now, competition shooters that are pushing the envelopes of speed, accuracy, and consistency have been using fiber optic pistol sights. Fiber optic inserts grab any available light in the environment to illuminate the end of the insert, which from the shooter's perspective will become a brightly lit colored dot, usually red or green. More recently, pro shooters have been eliminating the dots and inserts on the rear sights, opting instead for a clean black rear sight that the front post can nestle into naturally. This is a clean, consistent sight picture that I'm a big fan of. All of my pistols have had some form of that sight setup over the last few years. My current go-to Glock uses a Terran tactical set, which uses a red fiber optic front sight and a plain black serrated rear sight. It's great. With that said, the general recommendation you'll get from people immediately following get rid of those plastic factory sights is and get night sights instead. For those uninitiated into this particular gear craze, night sights use tritium inserts to provide a dot that always has some level of luminescence, though the brightness amount varies depending on the post design, the size of the insert, and the age of the tritium. Night sights are intended for low light shooting, supposedly when the target can be identified as an immediate threat but your firearm is not illuminated enough to get a clear sight picture. The glowing dots of the tritium inserts are meant to help you line up your sights to take the shot. Now there are a couple of problems with this that I don't see the experts spending time discussing for some reason. First, night sights operate on the assumption that the sight picture is taking priority over the target picture. In contrary to what we've discussed so far, night sights actually perform better when you aren't brightly illuminating what you're aiming at. If you hit the bad guy with 500 lumens from a weapon light, those tritium inserts may quickly wash out and fade into the black outline of your sight posts. Depending on how bright the light is, you might still be able to make out the glowing dots, but you'd have to focus hard on your sights to do so, and you almost definitely won't be doing that when there's a tangible threat in front of you. You're probably going to have your eyes on them for the most part. So if night sights are designed for low light and don't perform as advertised with a brightly lit backdrop, then what is their ideal condition of use? I think it could be argued that night sights would excel in an exclusively low light setting, where there is just enough ambient or environmental light to make out the target without the need to introduce a bright white light. This might be a dimly lit hallway or commercial building, or in a city setting before sundown or with ample street lighting. In these instances, the target might barely be illuminated enough to provide positive identification, 
and the tritium dots will be glowing brightly to help with site alignment. However, I feel strongly that the benefits of presenting a white light outweigh the slim margins of the tritium dots, and that you should set up your gear under the expectation that you will always be presenting the pistol with the white light presented and activated as well. Low light or no light, the tritium dots no longer have a substantial impact on your sight picture once a bright forward light is introduced. The other issue pertains to shootability, and I'll admit that this is only a minor gripe in the grand scheme of things, but little details sometimes matter. Historically, having tritium inserts meant that your front post had to be a certain thickness in order to accommodate the insert and the necessary housing around it, though certain companies are taking steps to address this. While precision shooting prefers a thin blade, combat-oriented sights have ended up involving these big, fat front posts. I've heard and read the argument pretty often that a larger post aids in getting a faster and more consistent sight picture, but I don't know how rigorously this has actually been tested. All of my pistols now have very thin fiber optic front posts, and both my ability to shoot with them and my ability to teach new students with those pistols have not been impeded. Basically, I'm saying that your pistol sights should aid in shooting as much as they possibly can in any lighting conditions. At the moment, I feel that a thin fiber optic front sight and a solid black rear sight hits this mark better than anything else. In daytime and under significant environmental lighting conditions, the fiber optic rod will take in a lot of light and your sight picture will be dominated by a crisp, glowing dot. Even with a thin post, aligning the front sight inside of the black box your plain rear sights create will be very easy and very consistent, especially if you train to pick up the front sight first and correct for post-height alignment when needed. The mantra of equal height, equal light is key here. In low or no light, the white light that you present with the pistol will take priority, and both the fiber optic front sight and the plain rear sight will become blacked out silhouettes against that bright backdrop. That's okay. With only a little bit of training, you'll still be able to consistently line up those black sight posts and make fast, accurate hits. You also won't have any cognitive delay introduced by multiple competing dots, as is common with the three dot night sight setups that are popular today. That's all I've got for you this week. I hope you enjoyed nitpicking lights and sights as much as I did. If you like what we're doing here, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave Range Talk a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. If you have a solid light and sight setup that you carry, show it off on Twitter using the hashtag Range Talk. If not, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.